0: I always say, no one wakes up and says, I want to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. No one. We start drinking or using drugs as to fit in or to be social or to anesthetize some sort of pain or discomfort or anything at all. And then it becomes a little bit of a habit and then we just start and continue and it creeps in so so slowly and a lot of times people will say to me how do i know if i'm an addict or how do i know if i'm an alcoholic and i always say especially to younger people the question you should be asking me is how do you get alcoholism how do you get drug addiction In the same way that you would be asking, oh, how do I prevent heart disease or diabetes or cancer? How can I start living healthier? Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this
1: is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. love to start there. I mean, the book opens, honestly, with such an intense chapter yeah. that I had never... First of all, I, your honesty is incredible. Oh, I had never you. had that perspective. Even right now, like my heart's kind of pounding <laughs> thinking about it because I've never read that perspective before. And knowing what your career was, what you've accomplished, in it, I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. I could not believe you were being so vulnerable, but also, oh, there's fully functioning successful people who have
0: this part of their this life. This part of their life. So yeah. can we
1: can we start there? We yes. can tell a bit of that story. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I did open the book with a really intense story where I really wanted the reader to feel what it felt like for me to be at the depths of my addiction. And What it was is, you know, it starts off, I always say, no one wakes up and says, I want to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. No one. We start drinking or using drugs as to fit in or to be social or to anesthetize some sort of pain or discomfort or anything at all. And then it becomes a little bit of a habit. And then we just start and continue and it creeps in so, so slowly. And a lot of times people will say to me, how do I know if I'm an addict or how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? And I always say, especially to younger people. The question you should be asking me is, how do you get alcoholism? How do you get drug addiction? In the same way that you would be asking, oh, how do I prevent heart disease or diabetes or cancer? How can I start living healthier? And essentially, like if you're someone that, and I'll get back to the drama of the beginning of the book... (laughs) I just went on this road for a second.
1: Follow it wherever it goes. Yeah.
0: If you are someone that has a predisposition to addiction or alcoholism, which means that somewhere in your close family, someone else has had this problem, and then you're genetically disposed to getting it. There's not one gene that causes alcoholism or addiction, but... There's something that we call epigenetics, which is that there's a bunch of different genes and depending upon how you're brought up, what trauma you've experienced, any underlying issues that you might have or just the stressors in your life, that one person might go that route where the other person might not. Mm -hmm. I mean, my sister's total what we call normie, non-alcoholic, and the rest (laughs) of my family, not so much. Yeah. So that's like one thing to be looking out for. And then the stressors, like the why are we picking up the drink, the why are we going to smoke, you know, weed before we're going to bed or right before we go out to a party or an event. Like, what are we trying if you can just notice why you're doing it? Because it's always about the why.
1: Yeah. And what are some of the whys that would be concerning to you as an addiction specialist?
0: I think that when the whys start to become, I just need to relax. I just need to unwind. I just need to quiet my mind for a while. I'm not really happy going out with my husband to these events because I'm really uncomfortable and I need to drink in order to have fun at these X, Y, and Z. And the minute you're drinking to have fun, maybe that's not quote-unquote fun anymore. And if you're drinking to take away pain or heartbreak, grief, those are things that you want to really be mindful of because those are traumas that you're going through and that can be a slippery slope. Because the thing is, is that it starts off and it did for me as medicine. It was my medicine, drinking alcohol. I think I drank alcohol. I know I drank alcohol alcoholically from day one.
1: Wow, really? And what age? I was, was
0: that? so I was older, much older than the kids are today, but I was 17. I was a late bloomer. <laughs> I was a late blooming alcoholic. And I was at um I was at summer school I was at a tough summer school program before I was leaving for college and I'd never drank and my grandmother was dying of cancer and she was like my second mom and i knew that this was happening but it wasn't something that my family was talking about and she was living at our house and i knew it was just a matter of time and i was terrified but not something that i we were outwardly discussing and so how was i how was i dealing with it a bunch of friends came into town came into boston made a bunch of drinks. We went to see some music show. And from the minute I drank, I was like, this is disgusting, (laughs) but this is amazing and what I've been missing. And I'm going to drink all of this and just get completely drunk. Wow. I hated the taste of alcohol, but I loved being out of my mind drunk.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I just loved it. It's funny. It's reminding me of like who has a first sip of alcohol and is like, "This is delicious"? I, I, mean, like, <laughs> I feel like the first thing I ever tried was like a Bud Light or something, and it's disgusting. disgusting. Like it's so gross. But our culture tells us, "Oh, it's an acquired taste. Yeah, you'll, you'll acquire a taste exactly. of this. Don't worry." Exactly. Which is so. I've never thought about how backwards that is.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah, people just. I was like, this is literally disgusting. But, oh, my God, amazing. Yeah. So I got completely drunk, passed out. This is just a little tad from the book. But I was, you know, on the ground, passed out. The boy of my dreams came over who had no idea who I was, started talking to me. And that went down as the greatest night of my life. (laughs) Imprinted oh, wow. on soul. Right. As this alcohol equals, I was finally able to talk to this boy. And there we go.
1: Wow. Gosh. I never, I mean, I have four kids and I'm just thinking of like that concept that how we first, to your word, imprint with alcohol, what that experience is plays such a role in what we believe it can be for us mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: So alcohol, easy to talk to boys, got it. Yep. Got it. Check. Got it. Check, check. And then in college, right, everyone drinks. So it was part of the culture. But in retrospect, not during college, I can look back and see, well, I was already drinking in my room before we went down to what they call now even pregame before we went out. So I was having a couple of sips in my room, or I would have a couple of shots. Then we would all go downstairs, my roommates and I, and we would pregame. And then we would go out to the bar. But for me, drinking from day one was get drunk. There was no casually have a couple of sips, drink a little water in between, (laughs) just seem a little social. It was straight to, I want to be blackout drunk. Yeah, yeah. And didn't know that that was bad, didn't know that was bad for you. I was very dramatic when I was drunk and very funny and very, very pretty and very thin and very this and very that. And so there was like, of course. Right. Of course, all your vulnerabilities just wash away and you can be anything you want. And I never tried – well, I smoked weed, but I never tried drugs until I moved to California. Okay. And what happened for me was that one of my best friends had died. He had taken his life, and I was completely traumatized, suffering from extreme PTSD. And when someone had introduced me to cocaine, I did it, and – The feeling that I got from that was relief, like just took away the anxiety of the OCD-like behavior that I had now had in my life from all the PTSD. Wow. And in the beginning, champagne, cocaine, parties, Hollywood, everything that you imagine, that's what it was and it was normal and it was normal and it was fun and i was doing it with the best of them and you know i got stories upon stories <laughs> <I'm> right sure, <laughs> yeah I'm sure and it was just acceptable especially then i mean this was still in the 90s and so i was able to to do it and still be able to go to sleep and put it down i mean that's what i'm saying it creeps in where it's not, it's still, I was still partying, quote unquote. It was still fun. Yeah. And I'm going to ask a lot
1: of um, dumb questions because I haven't ever done anything more than weed. And the fact that I said done weed probably tells you how sheltered I am. But in this instance, or or maybe all instances, doing a drug like alcohol in that you need more and more every time. Is that where the creep in happens? Yes. Okay.
0: So you build up a tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. You build up a tolerance for any drug, and this is like addiction 101. So this is how our brain works. This is the science behind addiction. This is for any drug. So We have the back part of our brain, which is the reptilian part of our brain, which is responsible for our heart beating, our body temperature, breathing, the things we don't have to think about, and also our survival, which is our fight or flight. We also have the front part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is not developed until we're about 25 years old. That's the part of our brain that is responsible for impulsivity, cognitive thinking, going off our memories, making rational choices. It's why with adolescents and young adults, they're more driven to seek out things that are exciting because that's how they learn. They're risk-takers because that's how they learn what they love and they want to do. But it can infuriate a family or parents because you're like, I've told you 52 times to pick up your knapsack and bring it home. And is it even called a knapsack anymore? (laughs) backpack. backpack. (laughs) (laughs) I keep aging myself with these crazy... (laughs) I was in the hotel the other night and I called downstairs and I said, can we get a cot? And the woman goes, What's a cot? Right. She's like, what? You're like, and I'm uh, like, a cot. Yeah. She goes, you, I go, you know, a bed that you can sleep in yeah. that's not the bed. Right. She goes, oh, a rollaway? Yes, yes. And my sister was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so their backpacks, you know, on the soccer field when you've told them 25 times to bring it. Right. And it's because their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed yet. Yeah. And these executive functioning skills are not fully formed. So – Let's say you have a healthy brain and you're in the woods or your backyard (laughs) (laughs) and you see a bear. Before you have time to think about it, you're running. Mm -hmm. And a couple of seconds later, your thinking brain, the front part of your brain, comes online and you start thinking it through. You notice you're running and you start thinking, okay, Should I climb a tree? I saw one time on Bear Grylls, he poked the guy, (laughs) you know, he poked the bear in the eye. And you start thinking things through. And it sends messages to the back part of your brain basically saying like, we got this. Yeah. Right? We got this and we're going to start thinking it through. Now, that sort of stop-start switch, so to speak, between the front and the back part of your brain with chronic use of alcohol or any other substance, ceases to work properly. And the reason is because when we're drinking or when we're taking a drug, like you were saying, we build up a tolerance and we want more and more. Well, what happens when we take it is we get an immediate hit of dopamine, cortisol, what have you. And our body remembers that. Just like for survival, we remember, oh, drinking water, yes, that's good for us. Eating food, yes, that's good for us. Having sex, yes, good for procreation. So the same thing happens and it imprints on our brain of like, we need this. So now, years later, after my quote unquote partying days, my cocaine champagne days are over, I find myself alone in hotel rooms, unable to stop despite the fact that I know the negative consequences are coming, that I know what's going to happen the next day, that I know I have pushed away my entire family, all my friends, and that my life is like looking through a straw. It is that narrow at this point. And I cannot stop because my brain is saying, you need this, like air, food, and water, Mm. And you must continue and you're unable to put it down. And it's why people in their quote unquote right minds would never do something that they would do when they're under the influence. And it's why it doesn't matter where you come from, how old you are, what your sexuality is, how much money you have, what color your skin is. All of our brains operate the same. And once you've sort of crossed that line into your brain isn't working in the same way, and that's why abstinence is called for once we've sort of hit that point. Because I know that even though I have 20 years where I haven't had a drink or a substance, that if I were to have a drink today... Mm -hmm maybe not tomorrow, but very quickly after, I would be searching out for drugs and everything I know and all of my wisdom and education would mean nothing.
1: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more. All Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. It's like what I'm thinking of is celebrities that you hear talk about Getting sober, and then I heard a term I had never heard before recently, which was like California sober. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yes, I hate that
1: term. I know it was so, and I was like, "Oh, is that?" I didn't understand that. That's how sobriety
0: works. It is not. Yeah,
1: okay. (laughs) It's all or nothing. There's no sort of gentle way to kind of do things over here and not have it lead back to where you're talking about.
0: I. This is such a big question. Oh, is
1: it? Is this a controversial topic? It's
0: not controversial but listen different strokes for different folks yeah for sure i am a drug addict and an alcoholic and i understand how my brain works and so there's no half halfway yeah there's no a little bit of this and a little bit of that now have people found success who were doing some types of drugs maybe harder drugs, heroin, or some sort of opiates, and they have found a way to manage their life with doing a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And in some circles, we call that harm reduction. This thing is less harmful than this one is. Yeah. And I think it's a personal choice of, is your life unmanageable or not? And then for me, and kind of where sobriety comes in, is it's not just about getting sober or being abstinent. It's are you truly living your meaning and purpose? Are you lit up? Are you able to grow down into who you're meant to be? and show up and be of service to others.
1: Yeah. In fact, in the book, it was the first time that I had ever heard someone talk about how often addicts or alcoholics, you tell me if I'm saying this wrong, you replace, like you might be sober, but you, for you, you replaced mm-hmm. your addiction with a different addiction. Oh, but these addictions are more celebrated, right? Being a workaholic or mm-hmm. having sex or having – those things are not as harmful, but you were still addicted, which I found fascinating.
0: Yes, because essentially that dopamine hit is what you crave, sugar, right? It's the same thing. You know, I can't have one M&M. I can't have one potato chip. So I'm either not having sugar or it's a problem for a week. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking of how widespread
1: addiction might be, but we only really think of it in terms of drugs. Mm. So I'm thinking of – what you're describing and how often being addicted to food or binging or making choices like that because you can't sort of step out of, I have a ton of addiction in my family. So I'm like, oh, wow, it didn't affect this aunt the way it affected my dad, but I could see what Mm -hmm. she's doing that was her own form of addiction, which I've never thought about before.
0: Yep, exactly. So
1: actually, that might be a really powerful understanding is... What's the definition of an addict of any kind of addiction? Is it that you can't step away from something? Is it feel like you feel like you have to do it? Like, is there something you guys use as kind of like a, this is our
0: test of whether or not someone's struggling? I mean, essentially it's, are we looking for something outside of ourselves to satiate our pain, our uncomfortable or whatever's going on internally, because everything on the external has an expiration date. I mean, there are obviously people that have eating disorders and sex addiction, and those are real behavioral addictions, gambling addiction. And so there's definitely a continuum of what that would look like for those people. But most of us have also these things that we just want a quick fix. We want to feel better quickly. We're a society that doesn't like to feel bad. And we're so immediate. Social media, I mean, everything. We're so immediate. I need the answer right now. Google. Like, everything. we don't know how to live any other way at this point. So when we want to feel better, we want to feel better fast. So let me go online and go shopping, that's going to feel better. By the time I get it, sometimes I'm like, did I? I don't even remember <laughs> buying this. Right? Yeah. It <laughs> doesn't even make me feel better two days later from right. shop off. I mean, what like was the I hit doing? Of getting it just, in that moment. It was just buying it. Yeah. And, you know, when we do that with food and we do it with relationships and we do it with lots of things. And I think that doesn't make us an addict, but they're – it's an it's an addictive behavior that we're looking for something outside of ourselves to fill that need inside and for me that essentially even though i had stopped using drugs and alcohol i was able to quickly not even realizing it go to oh I'll just be addicted to workaholism and I'll just be addicted to ego and power and prestige and money. And if I just get there, I'll be happy. And then if I just get there, I'll be happy. And you start to accomplish those things that you thought, oh my God, these are the things that are going to make my life just lit up. Yeah. And then you get there and you have that and not so much. Yeah. Not so much.
1: Yeah. And how long for you? Because this is definitely something I was really focused on the past, which was achievement and success. And I mean, the joy of achieving something maybe lasted 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because the immediate thought my brain goes to is what's next? Mm-hmm. What's now? What do you, I, I actually thought this the other day. I was driving home and I just thought... I wonder what life would have been like if I had experienced 2018 or 2019, which were some of the most successful from the outside looking in, mm-hmm. successful moments of my life. And I had just sat for a while. Mm. If I had just like settled back down and got centered again and got grounded and made sure that I was checking in with myself. No, everyone around me was like, go, go harder, do more, mm-hmm. do it again, create something. And I've, Didn't know better. So I fell into that. But I can't look at a single piece of success in my life and tell you that it felt like what I thought it was going to feel like. It it never was enough Mm -hmm. to be at a place in my life where, like, a lovely Thursday is enough, Mm. a great piece of banana bread is enough. Like, it's (laughs) not, it doesn't. It's not the big stuff it's it's the little stuff. So was it like that for you like you would achieve something and completely. You
0: gotta go. yeah. And I love that you brought it up because I think that right we are all sort of there's a there's a big push for success. And you know, especially for women, we want to achieve things. We want to show that we can. We want to be successful and have a voice. And that was really important to me when I was working in Hollywood. There was not a lot of women at that level representing those types of actors and movie stars at the time. And the minute I got a taste of that, I was like, yes, please, I'll have more. And everyone's like, do this, sign so-and-so. You can do anything. You can sit anywhere in any restaurant. You can go anywhere. And I'm like... Fabulous. (laughs) Fabulous. <laughs> and you don't even notice. Yeah. And it's so funny that you say that because I was literally at the at WME the other day, and I was sitting in someone's office. And I thought to myself, I wonder what it would be like now for me. Yes. When I have this conscious awareness of not just enjoying the moments, but being able to make meaning out of life. Because that's, I think, what we're missing when we're just go, 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 go. We're just, and I talk about it in the book as this sort of, we're all on these soul journeys. And sometimes we're just in our quote unquote ordinary life. Just la, 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 just, you know, climbing that ladder and not worrying about anything and going through the daily motions and who am I going to call and what deal am I going to do and so on and so on. And then sometimes we'll start to hear those little whispers because you will hear them and soul will speak to you and it will say, what are you doing? Yeah. Is this what you want? Right. Are you happy? Do you love him? Do you like this job? <laughs> right? And we're like, shh, shh, shh. Yeah. Shh, too big of a question.
1: Right. Who am I? Why am I here? Yeah. Like, no. Why do
0: I do all this? Yeah. yeah. You're like, shush, shush, shush. No, not now. Yeah. You have no idea what's going on right now. Right.
1: <laughs> and you also think, oh, that's a problem for like future Rachel. That's like future Rachel. She's going to forget. She'll be better. She'll be brighter. She'll be more grounded. She'll figure that out, that I'm just going to keep doing what I do. That's for her. Yeah. But you're never future you. You're always just whoever you are right now. Yeah. So you keep pushing it off thinking, oh, someday. Someday when this happens. Someday when the kids are out of school. Someday, someday. I love that you're talking about this idea of soul – speaking to us and that that still small voice it's always there it's just layered and covered by so much other stuff mm-hmm. it's been a lot of my work for the last year on the show is trying to help women well there's a few men who listen to the show but mostly mm-hmm. women to get back in touch with that intuition to get back in touch with themselves and to understand that the wisdom is always it's Dorothy and the Ruby slippers. It was always here. So what are some things that you learned in your journey that helped you to get in touch with a voice that you had disconnected from for so long?
0: Mm -hmm. Well the thing about the voice is it will start as a whisper, but it will continue to whisper and then it will yell and then it will scream, and then a brick house will fall on your head. Oh, girl. I understand this
1: on so many levels. Yeah.
0: So I think the first thing is, at what point do I want to listen to it? It isn't going to go away. And once you've had the brick house fall on your head, you're like, okay, do I really need that again? Because maybe I can intervene a little bit sooner. And the thing about the soul journey, which is essentially set up in the way that Joseph Campbell talks about the archetypal hero's journey, is that we're going along in our ordinary life and we hear this whisper and we can choose to listen now, but it will not go away. And then inevitably, hopefully, a guide will appear and that guide, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a person, but something that, that makes you stop and go, oh, that seems interesting. I'm curious about that. Oh, they did that. That's, that's cool. And if we don't stop there at that guide and pull that thread a little bit, you know, doing soul work is all about being curious. It's about what's underneath. It's about asking questions of why. So hard to do, but taking the time to sort of just slow down enough to notice these little synchronicities. Notice if guides are appearing. Notice if you're getting curious about something or something seems interesting to you. When I lost my way after the brick house fell on my head, I had to go searching for the guides. I had no choice. A brick house was falling on me (laughs) and I was at a standstill like the witch under the house of like, okay, nowhere to go, nowhere to be, nothing to do. Okay. And so then I started looking. But if you have the opportunity a little bit before that, sure, go and look. And then take a little bit of a leap of faith. You don't have to completely change your job or leave the relationship or, you know, do any big, big things, but taking tiny little right actions towards something that lights you up. We're not our work. We're not our relationship. We're not just a parent or a sister or a daughter, right? We we have things that really light us up, but again... How long is does do those things last? So we want to be finding the things that feed our soul, that really is that just taking long walks? Is that writing? Is that listening to music? Like, what are those things and do, do more of them? I went to Cabo last week, and it was a really surreal experience. I hadn't been in
1: maybe six years, but there was a very long time in my life. I lived in LA and it's more expensive now, but back then Cabo was kind of the inexpensive tropical vacation. (laughs) And it was a short flight. And we went there twice a year. We'd have a group of friends. We'd all go down. But I hadn't been there in so long. And I hadn't been there as this version of me. Mm. And so I hadn't remembered that whenever I would go to Cabo, I mean, from the time I got on the plane, my goal was to be drunk mm-hmm. for the next 4 days. Because I never took rest. I ne- I worked constantly around the clock and that was my rest period. So twice a year I'd get 4 days and I'd be like, "Okay, we're going to drink everything we can. <laughs> we're going to eat everything we can and then we're going to pass out and wake up tomorrow and do it again." That was my that's all I did in this beautiful location. Was drink and eat and pass out. And I went there with my boyfriend and I'm just such a different space in every realm. But also I'm not going to get drunk now. I'm not going to eat food that makes me feel like crap. All Just all of these choices. Mm-hmm. And it was so wild to be in a place as this version of myself where I used to really abuse my body under the guise. Of, I'm treating myself. Yep. This is self care. And to be honest, it was the only kind of self care that I knew about because I didn't have any other perception. But I love that you're saying, like, how long will these things last? Because I think we reach for stuff. Uh, you know, this conversation will air right before the holidays. Your book mm-hmm. comes out right before the holidays. And I think people are going to, Choose a lot of things because it's like at least for a moment, I can feel better. Mm -hmm. But if you are, to your point, slowing down, being in conversation, listening, what are some things that give me that feeling? Because when I was in Cabo, I got there and I went, (sighs) and I was like, just so happy looking out at the ocean. This is beautiful. I'm grateful for this moment. And when I took that breath, I realized in the past, The only time I took a breath like that was when I would come on vacation. Mm. Now I take a breath like that 50 times a day. You know, I've learned to breathe. I've learned to relax. I've learned to practice self-care. I've learned those. So I have those in my life all the time. And I don't need to generate them in a fake way, for lack of a better description. TravelTexas.com slash
0: get your own. No, I love that. I mean, I was the same. I think most people can relate to that. Just wanting to keep moving. It's like sharks need to keep moving and swimming or they'll die. And that feeling of, I just, I don't want to sit still because the minute I sit still, I'm thinking, and then I have to deal yep. with all this other stuff. Yeah, And so sometimes it's hard for most people to just sit still. You know, I was thinking when you brought up the, it is like Dorothy and the red slippers that James Hillman, who was a psychologist and the father of archetypal psychology, which was something I studied, he has the acorn theory. And what the acorn theory is, is that just as an acorn knows that it's going to turn into an oak tree, it's it doesn't need instructions. It doesn't need anything from anyone. It has the blueprint right there inside that this little acorn is going to blossom into this huge oak tree and need really nothing from anybody else, that we are the same, and that essentially soul is that essence of who we are and it is that unique fingerprint for each one of us and that that acorn lives inside of us and has the ability, if we just listen, to take us on this journey where we're going to continue to grow down, get the nutrients we need from the roots below and turn into this big, beautiful oak tree. And a lot of us get stymied along the way by trauma. And that's the thing that halts us. And we become fear-based and we want to flee and fight back and get out quickly. And we start to pathologize all of the things that are wrong with us instead of going back and looking at where were these ruptures along the way and how can I go and heal them? you have worked with so many people. I mean, the book really
1: documents these incredible stories of clients within your agency. You know, if we're talking about Joseph Campbell, you've had the dark hour of the soul and you realize, like, I've been sober for five years, but I still feel like something's missing. I'm not, you know, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm here. And then you begin to take this deeper dive. Like you say a lot in the book, like going deeper Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, here Mm -hmm. we're
0: going, we're going down deeper. How did that lead to the work that you do today? So basically I it was just coming out of this, I was in this dark night. I was unfulfilled in my job, but yet in these golden handcuffs, afraid to leave, didn't know I could do anything else. and went on a vacation, right? Because that's okay, that's where we go. We go to think. <laughs> and I thought, I really need to go by myself, but I was I didn't want to. I was a, I was like, mm, I'll go with my dad. So I'll kind of be by myself but I'll have someone to eat with all the yeah. time. So I took a bunch of books with me, and I listened to a bunch of things, and I started to just see what was interesting. And on in my readings, one of the things said, make a list of all the things that you ever wanted to do or the things that you love, especially when you were a kid. And so I had this long list, which I wish I still had, but I don't. But three of the things were... I want to be of service to other women. I want to learn more about addiction. And I want to be an emergency room doctor.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Right? Yeah. That's what I wanted to do when I was little. So it's I thought… a one way to get a dopamine
1: hit. Right? I thought…
0: <laughs> exactly. I thought, all right, it's just an exercise. I got home and I thought, what are some tiny little right actions? So… I started volunteering at A Sober Living for Women in Los Angeles. And I was like, how can I learn about addiction? And what are the prerequisites I need to take in order to take the MCATs? Wow. Okay? And I'm in my 40s. Yeah. Okay, let's not rule it out. It's just an exercise. Yeah. So I start going online and I go to UCLA and I find – that there are these classes in drug and alcohol counseling. And the prerequisites for the MCATs were a lot of math (laughs) and stats and physics. And, you know, that's why I went to law school. That was not my area. Right. I'm like, oh, let's take these addiction classes. And so I started, and I'm still working at, you know, Endeavor at the time. So I'm taking class at night twice a week from 7 to 10. And working as an agent during the day. But I love it. It's lighting me up. I'm learning all this new information. And as I was learning all this information and here I was, you know, five years sober, had a lot of family members that were in and out of treatment, obviously had a lot of friends and knew a lot of people in the entertainment world, same thing. And I thought, wow, there's all this new information. There's neuroscience. We're talking about this new word, trauma, that I don't think we understand. And I don't think people know what they don't know. This seems like a business. This seems like a little bit of white space in this field that isn't being fulfilled in a way that I would utilize it. It didn't make sense to me that, you know, when I was an attorney, people came to me for legal issues. As a talent agent, they came to me for career advice. And we have a mental health crisis, and we're asking our neighbor where they sent their kid to treatment, right. or we're asking the den- our dentist who a good therapist is, and we're Googling right, the most important questions that we might have in our lives. So true. And I thought, no, there's got to be a better way. So well, that just to give a little context for
1: listeners, um, so at an agency like WME, who, who is my agency, so it's worth saying that, at an agency like WME, I have an agent that represents me for podcasts, a different agent for books, a different agent for a screenplay. So there are different people that specialize in different things. Correct. But when we had our call originally before we got to sit down today, you were saying like there's nobody that does that for addiction and recovery. And that is, it's like one of the hardest things in the world, but nobody knows where to go. So it's, it's kind of one of those things that I hear you say it and I'm like, how did nobody think of this
0: before? Right. I mean, I just, I came at it from, okay, let's create an agency. That's what I know how to do. I ran in the talent department at UTA. I know how to do this. I know that when I was an agent, I represented male comedy movie stars. Not to say that we shouldn't have the fi- the next up-and-coming TV star on our roster or the Kate Blanchets of the world, but I wouldn't know what to talk to Kate Blanchet about. It's <laughs> just and I recognize that. Yeah. But so I was like, "Okay. So we should have a place for families and individuals and now companies to come and go. Now what? And either walk through the door of addiction, any sort of substance abuse, any sort of trauma, and any mental health crisis, whether it's anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, suicidal ideation, that's really grown over the last 11 years. And a place for them to say, we don't even know what's wrong. And this is how it's showing up today today right? Because everyone gets on the phone with, oh my God, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. I'm like, slow down. Let's go back. Tell me everything. Hmm. Tell me the soul story of your life. And then we can really start to do the healing.
1: Yeah. I think you say this in the book as well, that like if someone goes in and they're having any of the things that you just mentioned, you're talking to a doctor who's got 15 minutes
0: mm-hmm. to get
1: like your whole family history, all the things. And what they're most likely going to do in that moment is prescribe medication to you without full context, without, like you said, what's the backstory? How did we get here? What are So starting with the whole picture as opposed to just treating the symptom in that moment, because it's the quickest solution, which is sort of reminiscent of addiction in the first place. You're yep. trying a quick fix.
0: Yeah. I mean- Listen, I think that what I knew was the medical doctor has a very specific role. Everyone has their own lane. The therapist is going to do one thing. The psychiatrist is going to do another. And maybe your general practitioner is going to do something else. And maybe your attorney wants to do something else. And maybe your partner wants something else. So everyone is in their own lane with a very specific job to do. But if everybody's not rowing the boat in the same direction, then we're missing things because these are big aspects of your life, work, school, family, and it's all connected. And so it didn't make sense to me that no one was sort of overseeing that So it's not that we don't put these teams together where we have all of these different people, but everybody knows what the right hand is doing with the left hand so that we can all sort of keep rowing the boat in the same direction. And we can really focus on keeping balance in the person's entire life. What has changed most about this field in the last decade? Well, the pandemic. Oh, the pandemic made things worse. Made things so much worse. I wow. mean, we were already dealing with an opiate epidemic, but the pandemic really, really, this idea of mental health and depression and suicidal ideation in young people was, I've never seen anything like this. Wow. It has been devastating to hear from people so young that that's even a thought or a consideration. And that's because it's talked about and the desperation of not being able to deal with not just our own individual trauma, but the trauma of the world. We cannot stop all of that from getting in. We it's it's social media, it's the television, it's what we talk about, and it's coming at all sides. And especially the young people feel like, what am I What's what do I point? have to look forward yeah, to? Yeah. What's the point? And we certainly didn't grow up knowing the devastation around the world, knowing what was going on in all these other countries. We didn't have all of that We just lived in a little bit of a bubble and we didn't know much of what was going on. And now you can't help but know what's going on everywhere and it's scary.
1: Yeah. Is there something – we have so many parents who listen to this show. Is there something for listeners that you feel like this is what you recommend to parents of a client or advice you'd give to parents today that are like, hey – these are things that really freaking matter, like limiting social media, or live, like those sorts of things. Are, are there any pieces that you feel like help?
0: Well, definitely before bed, there's always that limit social media, turn the news off. You want to create a bit of a quiet time, but so much of it is going to get in anyway. So I think for for parents, it's about communicating really communicating with your children and having, using that quiet time, whether it's right before bed or when you're taking a walk or when they're in the mood, because that's so rare, you have to take those opportunities when they're ready to talk about something and use that as a way to really connect with what's going on and ask open-ended questions, not how was school, fine, right? Right oh, how was the party? Good, right? You want to really ask more open-ended questions or you want to mirror to them the way you want them to sort of be able to talk to you. You want to say, hey, you know, I had such a hard day today and my friend Sally called and this happened and I was really upset. And, you know, and then they go, yeah, me too. That's what happened with Rebecca last week. And so you really want to, be vulnerable and open about what's going on for you in these ways, in these small ways throughout the day that you can. And let them see that and they can mimic that. You
1: talked about the opioid crisis. What does that look like? And how sort of same question for listeners or parents, like that feels like another one that's a super slippery slope. And then all of a sudden you sort of can't get out of it. So how has that grown in the last decade and where are we
0: at with it now? Well, where we are now in the opiate epidemic is the fentanyl crisis. Mm -hmm. And fentanyl is a synthetic opiate. So it's easily made And it's inexpensive. So the drug cartel, and it's extremely addictive. And those that are already using opiates want it because it's stronger, a hundred times stronger than heroin, morphine, all of this. Yes. They're looking to add that to their repertoire. But what's happening now is there's such an influx of it because it's so cheap because it's so addictive that those people unbeknownst to them that don't know it's in something because they think they're, you know, doing cocaine or they think they're taking a Xanax or they think they're taking a Vicodin and you only need literally a kernel. So like just a piece of salt, a kernel of sugar that is enough to kill you. And so it has taken so many lives. Yeah, we keep seeing
1: reports again and again in and around Austin of like four kids died at this high school, two kids died at this. It's always, they're always young. Mm -hmm. It's always like high school. Mm -hmm. Not all at a party together. It's like in the last week, Mm -hmm.
0: this particular high school lost three kids to fentanyl, which is wild. Because they're putting it in Xanax. Vicodin. They're putting it in pills where a kid goes, Yeah, I want to try that. Oh, they're not it's not necessarily that they're like, Oh, I want to do fentanyl. No. Oh. No. So yeah, they're putting it in other things. And now there's something called rainbow fentanyl. So it's colored and in the way that e-cigarettes were flavored and sort of marketed towards kids that that's what they're doing with fentanyl. And so they're putting it in these almost candy-like pills. Wow. They go, yeah, I'll try, you know, oh, this is really relaxing. And they don't know what it is. Right. And then those that know about the fentanyl crisis, and most of these younger kids don't, it's the first time they tried something, and we're not getting second chances. So... You know, I got asked this question the other day of like, how many clients do you have that are addicted to fentanyl? Like, none, because they die.
1: Wow. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives It's why I love a company like Thrive Market, because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. Market.com slash ThriveMarket.com slash This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. This whole time when I keep hearing about it, I'm thinking that they're like at a party and someone's like, oh,
0: you want to try fentanyl? And never thinking that it's put into something else. No, no, it's put into something else. And, you know, there are test strips, which is important to note. They're not everywhere, but they're pretty much now in every state. And even if they're not quote unquote legal yet in that state, they won't really go after someone. And you can what we were told initially was, okay, you can test. You can scrape off a bit of this or that, and you can put it on this test strip, and you can test and see if it has fentanyl. But what I learned recently from the DEA is that, no, not so fast, because now it's so small, it's only a kernel, that you might scrape off a piece of that pill that that doesn't have it. Wow! And so it's just... You know, I mean, I say this to my niece and nephew who are both in college, nothing, nothing that you don't know where it's from. Yes. You know, and even then it's like no pills, no powder, like that's over. That has to be over. Wow.
1: Wow. Okay. When you are sort of looking at the landscape of your current clients, because mm-hmm. tell tell me about what the business looks like today because you have a, a team that works mm-hmm. with you. Yes. Is it people all over the world, all over the U.S., just in certain cities? Like what is it – how
0: does it work? So yeah, we have people all over the world and clients all over the world. And they will come to us with, like I said, this now what or a crisis. And first we will evaluate If it's a crisis situation, what's the acuity? Do they need to be hospitalized right away? Do they need to be in a psychiatric unit? Do they need to go straight into detox? Was someone arrested? Whatever that looks like. And then after we deal with the acute situation or getting them back into the country or having someone, right, there's lots of people, I don't have my ID and I'm in the middle of wherever and you know, can you get my kid out? And we have a whole sort of black ops operation. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm sure. Security and whatnot. And the answer is usually, yeah, everything, we can figure it out. And going and getting these people to safety. And then once we've done that, it's about taking a moment to do these assessments. And that looks like talking to the entire family system, or in the case of some people, if they're more of a celebrity or well-known or business person, that family system of consequences might be the people that they work with. Yeah. So whatever that family system looks like for that person, getting information from them if there's clinicians that are already involved or doctors that are already involved, if there's testing, neuropsych testing that's been done, if there's discharge paperwork. So I'm like, send me everything. We're looking for patterns. We're looking for just information about this person's journey and what has worked and what hasn't. Where not just what's wrong, not just the pathologies of, well, they have this, they have this, their diagnosis is this, 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 and this, a mom will say. I'm like, how do you know? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How do you know for sure? Because the thing is, is that addiction and trauma symptoms and mental health symptoms all look the same all look like anxiety, all look like ADHD, all look like depression until you pull them apart and you really know right. What's it's what. like a traumatic brain injury and how many
1: symptoms present themselves as mental health and issues of that nature. And then you find out, oh, they've got three concussions Mm -hmm. and you map their brain and see that, oh, they're actually, there was a reason that all of this was happening, but we were just looking at the symptom.
0: Exactly. So I really take a very integrative medical approach in finding out everything. Let's get all their blood work. Do they have a thyroid issue? Are they hormonal? Are they going through menopause? Are they, you know, what for this younger girl, like how have her periods and been? What's going on for her? Let's look at that too. Everything's connected. To think that our biology and our psychology and our physiology are not connected is ignorant at yeah, this point.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like you're gaining on this? Do you feel like most people who come through the program, you're like, yeah we're we're doing this, or do you feel like most people come through the program will utilize your services for the rest of their lives?
0: when you say the program,
1: what do you meaning mean? meaning like yeah I'd, basically, I just wondered like how taxing is this mm. on you because a lot of the stories in the book, it's not maybe the first time that you've had to go you know you tell the story mm-hmm. about going to find Um, that guy in the middle of the night when your mom Mm -hmm. was staying with you and um, that it's not the first time that Mm -hmm. this has happened. So how often do you feel like, okay, we we did it and I don't think we're ever going to need to help this person again. And how often is it like, no, my purpose in life is that I'm going to walk side by side with you forever?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. When I first started the company, I thought it was going to be one and done. Yeah. And they never leave. And it's not that we're working together, you know, and they're continuing to pay and pay and pay in that way. But as we grow, And as our life changes, even in sobriety or even when we're healthy or even when there's no like, oh, I've achieved this wellness and I am done. Right, right. (laughs) I am healed and that is it. Yeah. Because then life happens. So most of our clients, I would say 85% of our clients come back around with, hey, I just graduated from school and now I'm looking for this job and I don't know what I'm doing yeah. and you know where where are we? And so that was unexpected and amazing. The other part is that we'll start out maybe working with one person in the family and then switch to oh, wow. another and another and another. And so that's really interesting cuz you know wellness is contagious. Yes. And So that was something unexpected. There are certain clients that will come in with mental, serious mental illness or at a phase in their drug addiction where I intuitively know it's not going to be, there's no quick fix. And I'm straight up with families. I'll say, listen, this is going to be a year before you see this person the way that you want to. Because they're coming in with, so what do you think, 30, 30, 60, 90 days? I'm like, no, I think a year. Yeah. And they're like, we're not sending them away for a year. I'm like, no, they're not sending away for a year. But like, this is a year. This is not – how many years did it take to walk into the forest? Right. Oh, that's good. That's so good. Because they're like, we don't have the time. I'm like, sorry, I didn't raise them. Right,
1: right. (laughs) Like, I did not – this is not on me.
0: It's so true. I think about even
1: something like going through a divorce that all these years later, I'm like, "I, I can't believe that I'm still processing this or unpacking this or dealing with this thing. And then I'm like, well, you were together 18 years yeah. So if it's been three and you still are unpacked, that's probably normal. Like, 100%. how long did it take to walk into the forest is so fantastic.
0: Yeah. How long did it take to walk in? And, you know, the thing about, and I, I don't know the story of your marriage or your divorce, but I hear someone's been married for 18 years and now they're divorced. That is an entire part of your life. Yes. That. Now, this other part of your life is going to be shaped by this relationship and what you've learned. Every great relationship is a teacher. Yeah, for sure. And also someone that's still involved in your life as the father of your children. And so it's just about, okay, maybe the relationship doesn't exist in this form, but it still exists. Right. And what are the more lessons to be learned from it and the continuous healing not just for you but the other person and the kids and everyone
1: yeah i mean i think that's probably this is the work right this mm-hmm. is it's not just about can we remove these things from our lives that shouldn't be there the drugs the addiction the any of it but also What does it look like to do the work on ourselves to get in touch with that soul to go deeper, as Mm -hmm. you said? When you set out to write this book, what was your hope? What was the thing that you hoped people would take away
0: from reading Soulbriety? So it was during the pandemic. I had always the concept of Soulbriety came from my dissertation. the The question of the dissertation was can doing soul-centered work help with long-term recovery? And the answer was yes, but the caveat was that my participants didn't have the language. So uh, while I saw in the stories and in the research that they were doing soul-centered work and they were gaining from it, that they weren't able to go back and do it again when they wanted to, and we certainly weren't able to talk about it or teach it. So that something was always on my mind. And then when the pandemic happened and the influx of calls and the people that needed help and just the sheer amount of despair, I I felt like I I couldn't help enough people just with the company alone. And it was just this, I was called to write the book which when I started, I had no idea what what the book was going to be. I started off, okay, well, I'm going to write a self-help book. This is how you do sobriety. And that just never was coming to fruition. It just that you can't teach it in that way. And, you know, coming out of Hollywood, I knew how to tell stories. I knew how to – I read thousands and hundreds of thousands of movie scripts – so I just started writing story and then I started realizing okay I can put this all together in a way and that's just really what happened I just started writing and writing and writing and writing <laughs>
1: 900 pages later. <laughs> it's what a yes. lot of people do on the, They're like, oh, I wrote down all my ideas and it's 1,000 pages long. And then you have to take this massive story you want to tell and go, okay, how do I bring it to a way that's digestible and that everyone can understand? And I do want to say this for listeners who are like, I don't really, I don't feel like I'm struggling or I don't feel... I really feel like this is a book that's for everybody mm. because it is that balance of if you feel like you're struggling with addiction or alcohol, there's something for you. And if you want to take a deeper dive in your life, you mm-hmm. want to connect with soul, you want to connect with intuition, there's something for you. There's really a beautiful marriage of both of those in this work. So I yeah. want to acknowledge you for that. very well Thank you done. so much. Thank you yeah. so much.
0: Yeah, I really wanted it to also be about a woman in their 40s who was no longer happy in their life and in their job and had this this ability to look and get curious and figure out what was next and completely go down a different road and leave that business without feeling like it was a failure, mm. but rather that it was an amazing achievement that I'm so grateful for and what's next. Isn't that funny how we do that? We think if something ends that it was a
1: failure. And in fact, it was just what was meant to be for that period of time. Exactly. And it's really cool to see what you've done with what came next. Thank you. So for listeners who want to grab the book, they want to learn more about you, maybe they want to find out about the business, can you tell us all the places that they can connect with you online?
0: Yes. So the website is drhallerman.com, and that's D-R-H-A-L-L-E-R-M-A-N.com, and they can find me on Instagram at dr. Elisa Hallerman, which is d r e l i s a hallerman dot com or it's not dot com on Instagram. It's you know what it is, people. Yeah. <laughs> you got know to figure it out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's pretty much how you can find us or find me. Learn more about RMA, and the yeah. book is available for pre order now. Anywhere books are sold. Yes,
1: (laughs) perfect. Thank you so much for being
0: here. Oh my God, Rachel, yeah. thank you so much. Yes, it was such a pleasure.
1: Absolutely, this really, was,
0: really awesome. Yeah, my I, favorite podcast. Oh,
1: good, good. I feel like I tend to go all over the place, but no, I really. I I'm like, oh wait, okay, let's follow that rabbit hole. So yeah, thank you so much no, for coming to Austin. And oh my me. God, I
0: love it. First time here. Good.
1: Oh, is it really? Yes. Oh, okay. If only you ate meat, I could send you to some really great places. If only. <laughs> The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.
0: NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or Lending Partner Banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit Credit to the people. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me.